0: This is Dylan Conroy with Digital Rainmaker, interviewing Dave Larson, Chief Marketing Officer of 511 Tactical. Dave, tell me, how did you get into marketing?
1: Like many college students, I had no idea what I was good at. I majored in poli-sci. After teaching tennis, this is a short version, after I was a tennis player, I played college tennis. Went to Europe, basically taught tennis for several years with Vic Braden, opened up six tennis schools ended up forming our own company and did some interesting things maybe we can talk about later. It wasn't until after maybe six years of kind of playing overseas I realized I better do something with my life so I took a entry-level job at Track Kniesel based out of Boston. So I've been living in Germany for six years and here I am, Stanford graduate, taking a $14,000 per year job (laughs) in Boston as the Associate Promotions Manager for Kniesel Tennis. And this is a ski company it was track cross-country skis and Canaisal Alpine and cross-country. It's a ski company, and they happened to build a tennis racket that was well-adopted on the Pro Tour. And guys like Lendl and at that time a young, very young Pete Sampras. And 22 players in the top 100 used this racket, and they didn't know anything about tennis. So they hired me, drove my car from my parents' house in Seattle, across country, with everything I had in my little CRX, started in this job, and basically did promotions for them for several years. I'll cut back to this, but I realized actually I was pretty good at marketing ideation, coming up with programs, and I seemed to be able to spot a marketable story. So that was how I found. But I, I didn't know going in. I learned from the ground up. What was your degree in? Political science. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Something I never
0: used. And it seems like you've always, to some degree, been involved in sports marketing.
1: Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. It's yeah, except for now. After graduating, before I went overseas, I had no idea what I was good at, so I took a job with Airborne Freight out of Seattle, (laughs) worked at SeaTac Airport from 12 noon to 12 midnight, and I rated and routed packages for Washington, Oregon, and Alaska, <laughs> and realized after six months I hated this. When someone said, "Hey, you're not, you're doing okay," in three years you might be able to be station manager in Omaha. A friend called me, says, "You want to go overseas and teach tennis and open tennis schools?" I said, "Yes." That's awesome. They said, "By the way, where is it? Germany." I don't speak German. You'll learn, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> so you, yeah.
0: And were you a player in undergrad and high school
1: or uh, yeah, 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 yeah? You had a kind of blood. Yeah.
0: So but I was
1: fun. one of these guys that was good enough to be a really good regional player, but when it came to the national side, I walked on Stanford's team and played all four years, nice. but we had guys like McEnroe, so I knew <laughs> I wasn't gonna to crack the top six for those guys, but still, it was fun. And yeah. to this day, I
0: play and play tournaments. What are some highlights for your days at Reebok and Nike?
1: Reebok was interesting because, I should back up a little bit, so we merged with Olin Skis. So we moved down to Middletown, Connecticut. So it became Olintracht Kniesel. And they finally said, we can't pay any more money in tennis. The way you got to make money, and when I'm taking talking money, we're talking 40 grand, <laughs> which is actually wasn't bad then, but still yeah. for, he said, you should probably go to a real tennis company or you should learn the ski side and, and we could adopt you here. That's
0: where the money was.
1: Yeah, at that company. So I said, adios. And I went and got a job as product line manager for Wilson in Chicago. Oh. So I moved to Chicago and it was, Literally for a been year, I had a blast. been out there once. It's kind of in the suburbs, right? Yeah. At that time, it was right by O'Hare. Okay. They've yeah. since, I think, moved it, but it's still close by. But yeah, it was a good company, very conservative. Very. I come from a really creative <laughs> ski company. And there, they're still in their blue blazers and their, their red tennis bags. But having said that, it was a good company. Then I got a call back from that ski company, said, all right, we want to bring you back. This time we want you to be in charge of marketing for all three ski brands. To which I said, well, I'm not really a marketing guy. I have kind of promotions. I'm good at giving it away and decent skier, but I don't really know the insights. They go, no, we like you, we want you to bring back. So I moved back to the same old department and I was with them another maybe three, four years. And I loved it. We did some crazy stuff marketing wise and we had some really creative and people that worked above me taught me a lot. When this company started basically going under, mm-hmm. Skneisa was sold to the Austrians, Olin was sold to K2 and Track was sold to the competitor Carhu. There was no more job. so. I was looking and I ended up begging a guy to take me in. It was called Time Sports Inc., based out of New Jersey. So I was
0: sales manager for 16 sales reps. So that's not the same association to Time Inc., Sports Illustrated and nope. Sports Illustrated Golf? And not even group. close. Gotcha. Okay. And
1: in fact, the only connection I had with Wimbledon is that they bought the license uh, for for America gotcha. for um, a line of Wimbledon tennis rackets, which were pretty good rackets, a line of apparel, casual lifestyle apparel that you with the logo on it, they had a couple of shoes. So I carried a sales bag for a year, learned a lot there, learned I didn't want to do it anymore but realized how hard sales is. <laughs> Got thrown out of a few accounts for <laughs> trying to be persistent. The guys at Reebok, I knew them, they'd been trying to get me in as their tennis promotions guy. They were knocking on Nike's doorstep as being the top tennis brand. They were doing real well and they had Michael Chang at number one and Arantxa Sanchez, number one women's player. They had a lot of players, they were spending a lot of money in tennis and doing some great ads. and. They were flying as a brand. They tried to bring me in once, and they basically said, we don't have a job in tennis, but we've got a job where half the time you can manage our kids' business, which I didn't know anything about either, and half the time you'll be managing the new kids on the block tour, which they <laughs> were gonna sign that day I was gonna sign my contract. Well, Bob Wolf, the agent who ends up, ended up having Moses Malone and a few other top athletes, Larry Bird, he ended up doubling the contract, cost. It was, they wanted $2 million for this band and Reebok said screw it. So that job didn't, didn't happen. happen yeah. So I think maybe a, a year, probably seven months later, I was at the super show in Atlanta and giving a pitch for this Wimbledon company on rackets to some retailers and five guys from Reebok walked in and said, okay, we're ready for you. I just looked at my boss who who knew I would be leaving? He said, "I just said, see ya." <laughs> finished my presentation. So I moved. Yeah, I went, I went back to Boston, and I for two years I was in charge of global tennis marketing, which was a good job. I mean, we, tennis was on fire as a category, and they had some really smart marketing people there. I just I learned a lot, and I'll tell one one story. When I when I usually talk about my career, I tell yeah, this to, especially younger people. I thought I did real well the first year, and I went in my bar, my boss Mark Holtzman, who ended up being. Charge yeah. of NFL. Mark, he, you know Holtzy?
0: Uh, I think he was married. My wife worked for his wife. Uh, N.J. Goldstein? I no. I was Sherry.
1: Mark Goldstone. For- no, no. that's He was, the he CEO, was also right? there. This, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He ended up going to LA Gear. Ah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. No, this guy, his name's Mark Holtzman, and Holtzman. he was. Gotcha. He's just a, a really solid, smart, smart as a whip guy. Ended up doing NFL licensing for about 18 years after he left Reebok. He said, So tell me, what are you proud of? What would you tell your grandkids? about this year that you're so proud of doing with Reebok Global Tennis. And I looked at him, I said, hmm, well, I took this program, moved it up a little bit. And I said several things, this is my review. And he goes, next year when we meet, I want you to really come up with something that says you you had a legacy, that you would love to tell your grandkids. I didn't, I wasn't married at that time, but when you eventually, something you're so proud of. So I said, okay, you got it. Everyone asked me, so what'd you do? Because a a year later, at that time, it wasn't considered normal, but we ended up sponsoring the U.S. Open tennis tournament that's Mm. being played right now, by the way. We decided to build a tennis court on a pier right underneath at South Street Seaport, right underneath Mm. the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. It was owned by the mafia, uh, (laughs) and so I basically had to bribe some guy with $10,000 in cash in a briefcase, leave it in a museum, and that way he would clear out the pier of all the cars that were on it in order wow. to let us build our court and have a two-day mm-hmm. festival for all of our tennis players to play in front of 2,000 people. But oh, that no, was crazy, that's, man. That's... And now it's kind of done regularly. Then it wasn't. And we closed down Broadway at Columbus Circle. We got permits to close a whole street down. We built the tennis court and did the same thing. So nice. so that was kind of my legacy. Big Two things. And, and, well, no, just, and then I'll yeah. start on no, Nike no, and you can ask your other. questions. Yeah. But yeah, and then uh, after two years, I got a phone call from a buddy of mine at Nike. And mm. I'm from Seattle, so... Mm. When i got a call from beaverton oregon said hey we're looking for somebody to run our tennis division uh, which meant everything from have all design tennis design both footwear and apparel report to you do all the marketing they're looking for someone to do that we'd like to hire you and i just went i went wow really i mean that's i've never done that before product promotions you give away this is everything but here you're you're responsible for growing the the bottom line the category category and and coming up with the new collections and i did that i remember going into the uh i won't mention his name but the president of that time a fiery South American <laughs> and tell him I was leaving I said you will never he said you're a promotion guy you'll never be able to do that you will fail I just looked at him and I said I guess we'll see went to Nike 10 years there had a great, wow. great career that's a whole different story but uh,
0: I loved it 2002 you made a big pivot into television specifically in the gaming space at G4 can you tell me a little bit that, that seemed like a very interesting kind of pivot for you based on what you had done all up to that point and what you've done prior
1: Yeah, I should probably first tell you a little bit at Nike, just a short version because it kind of plays into into the the G4 story. Uh I spent two years at Nike, or what was it, 93 to 95, running their tennis division. We were lucky in that we had Courier, who was number one in the world. We had Andre Agassi, so we had some really good franchises there. Mary Pierce, Phil Knight came up and he said to me, what do you think if we signed Pete Sampras, who just won, U.S. Open?" I said, well, you know, Pete's obviously a great player. I've known him for years. But he's not the most exciting personality. And if we sign him, Andre's going to be pissed because they're going to ask each other who's, who's going to. Uh, yeah, who's the yeah. lead guy. And, and Andre fancies himself. And it's probably true that he was the guy who started Nike tennis. By the way, McEnroe thinks that too. But, um, <laughs> they were both very instrumental. But and I said, well, so I probably just save the money and spend it elsewhere. And he goes, well, I just signed him. <laughs> nice. I went, Oh, okay. Do you have a line to put them in? And we had been working on this. We call it the, the swoosh line. Cause yeah. it was the first time Nike was going to not use the words, not use the word Nike on the logo. It was just going to be swoosh only. So it was going to be kind of that upscale tennis look for like the golfing line of tennis yeah, yeah. and Pete fit in perfectly to it. And we had come came up with a baggy kind of surf short that Pete liked and a very classy upper end. To this day, they still use that same logo and so I did that for two years. And they sent me to Germany because we had issues there, and I, had, I learned German when I was there in tennis. Nice. So I spent three and a half years there. That's what really changed my career, to be honest with you, because I was always the tennis guy. Uh-huh. Tennis, 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 a little bit of skiing before that. But you know, we signed Borussia Dortmund, which was uh, they won Bundesliga soccer title three times in a row. We signed Michael Schumacher, the Formula One racer, so we did commercials on him. That was Unbelievable! He was his biggest Jordan then, globally. no Seriously, way. we had a press release where we showed people just the designs for his his shoe. We did a, a racing shoe form as well as a cross trainer, and we had 150 people at the Stuttgart Four Seasons. Stuttgart uh-huh. Four Seasons. It's crazy, the pandemonium <laughs> over this guy, and Uta Pipic and Dirk Dirk Nowitzki. Before anybody knew he was going to be a star in the NBA, we signed him as a guy right out of Würzburg, no Germany, which was nowhere. Other things, so. I went from tennis guy to all of a sudden marketing guy for all sports, for all brands, and they brought me back to the States. By this time, Nike was getting really big. I had been lucky in that I was kind of outside the the berm, they call it. Core epicenter. Got to kind of do my own thing, but had still the seniority of having been a guy at corporate. When I came back, uh, I was pretty political, but having said that for four years, I ran major brand initiatives. So anything from we launched shocks to Presto to a new cross training campaign to freestyle basketball campaign. A flight force basketball, so it was one that, and we t- we spent 120 million dollars just on TV advertising for Shock, so it was crazy, and you got to manage these these cross categorical initiatives. And after about four years, and that's where I learned being a virtual manager is not easy when you have no money, no budget, because it's all in the various f- silos, and you have no direct reports, so you're doing it all by influence. Yeah. It's like a political lobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know just when you think you got everything lined up, someone throws you, curved, you get a curve. You got a. I got tired of it. Small lean team. So they said, fine. Hey Larson, we're gonna send you to L.A. So I got to spend two years in L.A. doing a, L.A. marketing office. They did one in New York, one in L.A., and one in Chicago, and it was great. We had we had a lot of fun there. So you like kind of the Hollywood
0: guy for Nike for a couple of years.
1: No, hmm. I didn't do that. We yeah. had a whole group that did Hollywood entertainment, entertainment. stuff. Yeah. I, I took the the brand initiatives, and I would make sure they happened in a Unique to LA way.
0: Gotcha. So um, major market focus
1: in a way. Yeah, okay. we did a basketball thing. We nice. ended up having a hosting a huge concert in in Compton, and we nice. brought in Snoop Dogg and Parliament, <laughs> and and we had a, 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 a we beat a village where they got swoosh haircuts and they dunk contests. It was cool, and that was just basketball. We did soccer and all sorts of crazy stuff. After a couple of years of that, I was then going to go back to corporate, and I got a call. This gets to your finally answering your question. Sure, no, that's all good. From I mean, a company owned by Comcast, it was going to be a TV network on video gaming called G4. Was uh, Neil Tiles there yet?
0: No. Uh, Neil Tiles was the president for a little
1: bit. Okay. No, it was Charles Hirschhorn. Okay, gotcha. And he was a Disney big executive for many years there, and he put this team together of people. I was a marketing guy from Nike. He had a couple of people from MTV, had a couple of people from A&E, and they had basically built that network. and. After two years, worth a lot of money. And I did my career mulligan. Listeners never do it for the money. (laughs) Because they came in and they said, hey, we're going to double. What are you making? We'll double that. And you'll have equity. You'll be worth jillions, a couple years. And so I said, OK. So I quit my job at Nike, which, by the way, I still liked. But I was in LA, so it was easy. All of a sudden, I'm in Hollywood and marketing. And it's just a different animal. It's another beast, right? Yeah, it's a little bit disingenuous. It was a little sleazy for me. And I wasn't a video gaming guy, which didn't help three months I kind of went home I go well I made a mistake to which my wife said (laughs) I told you so and having said it was a good company it was a great boss it just wasn't me and so they said it's not working out and I go yeah you're right it isn't so I left didn't have a job two little kids so I'm thinking now what do I do with my life I'm in LA I ended up contacting a guy named Kevin Wolf. has an interesting history if you don't know him he Miller beer for years and then he was Nike president of Nike Canada then he was GM of North America was about 10 years. And then he went to Adidas. And then he went to the WTA, Women's uh, Tennis Association. Yeah, uh-huh. And this guy's a basketball guy. He yeah, had signed Garnett sense. and a, a lot of basketball and NASCAR. He was a CEO of the WTA. So I called him. I said, Kevin, you don't know anything about tennis. I do. And I need a job. <laughs> I said, you could use me. So he said, fine. He goes, I really need a head of PR because I've got 18 PR people. Whatever. Come in. be my marketing guy. So I moved to Tampa for one year. I was on the road 99% of the time because uh, it's a tour. Yeah, I put on. And I created, and I tried to make them a brand, create. Yeah, I read some
0: interesting, I think it was a quote from you in a sports book or something. It was, it was kind of interesting time because the organization had already, they, their TV licensing was parked over here and their brand licensing was given out to another group. So it was pure trying to build the brand from the inside out and do, doing some cool campaigns with some of the female players. It was that time where tennis was having a lot of crossover into sex appeal and that a little bit more spicier marketing in the tennis
1: world and stuff like that. So I got that, a good story for you. Yeah. Me, I'd love people. to hear that. <laughs> this is one of my best ones. I even tell it to my people here because we're kind of in that same kind of entrepreneurial sure. spirit yeah. we are a nonprofit and literally, like you said, we had given all of our TV rights as a an association, yeah, as an yeah. organization. Mm-hmm. To the, back to the tournaments, mm-hmm. we had no money. It was basically an officiating organization. Yeah. Far cry from the Billie Jean King days when it was meant something and, mm-hmm. and they started it. So Kevin, my boss, had just moved it, the championships from Munich to IMG to AEG. So he moved the championships from Munich where they lose losing money to Staples Center, which was a good move, but it ticked off IMG and IMG controls all the tennis. So we weren't in a good political space. Mm-hmm. So I decided my legacy here will be I'm going to build a brand campaign. So I went and begged, borrowed, and steal. And got talked to an old buddy of mine who was at Nike before in advertising. And he was now at Shite Day. And I just said, listen, you got to do some pro bono work for me. I need an awesome campaign. And I don't have any money. I said, use it for your portfolio. So sure enough, Mike Allen, I just talked to him a couple of days ago. They put a team on it. And it was great. Because first of all, when you're, you're in an organization, especially the WTA, you have no control of the players. Because yeah. we had Venus and Serena. We had Capriati. We had Kornikova. Yeah and more, Kim Kleister's, a bunch. And the name of the campaign ended up being Get in Touch with Your Feminine Side. And if you remember the old Virginia Slims days, it's like yeah. the sexy, skinny girl sitting, yeah. smoking a cigar. It's a typical stereotype of a, of a woman athlete those yeah. days. We decided to redefine feminine. So we took shots of all the top 12 players, black and white, grainy shots, right in their face as they hit the ball. Serena, literally, like five inches from her face. And if you've ever looked at that, it looks like, the picture of her, her bicep was right in there because she had just finished a backhand. And she looked yeah. like she literally was going to devour. She's was just like angry. And Celis looked like kind of this mean chipmunk. And the shots were terrible The people. And then we framed it with a bright pink border and it said, get in touch with the hem- feminine side. And I had these kind of quotes, these cute quotes that we, quotes that we slightly twisted around. Kind of tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and I, I had to get, the, of course, everybody to approve it. And I remember Serena saying to me, Dave, that is the worst picture of me I've ever seen. There's no way you're using it. And I looked at her, I said, I go, Serena, that's what you look like when you hit the ball. I go, we're redefining femininity. It's about how hard you, this is about power. This is about empowerment. Empowerment. And she looked at me and and I got to give her credit. She looked at me, she says, damn right. We didn't have money for media. So I went and bought remnants in London. And I did what I call the Potemkin's facade. I basically bought six billboards on a street that goes from the Players Hotel, the Gloucester, to the All England Club. It was yeah, about five miles. Yeah. And I put these, because all the press stayed there. If you were driving, which they did for the fortnight there, you, you basically passed like these five billboards <laughs> of these. And it looked like we had covered the world for it. That's so weird. we got huge promotional it's value. Like when
0: the, uh, the CMOs of the movie studios buy all the billboards <laughs> on the CEO's
1: route home. It's exactly <laughs> what we did. And it worked. So that was cool. That's so, right. But anyway, I, I did that for a year. Just the travel was going to get to me. And then I got a call out of the blue. This kind of brings me closer to where we are now. And headhunter. And he said, oh, we got 250 people. And we're trying to find a senior VP of marketing for Brooks, the running shoe company. I said, well, you know, I, I run, but I didn't run college. I'm, I'm not a... He goes, we got plenty of those. We need a marketing guy. And I went there. I, it was back in my home city of Seattle, which was pretty cool. Ended up in there 13 years. I loved it. We took it from $60 million private equity owned company. A basically 550 million dollar company owned by Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. You and get to all Warren? The, what's that? You ever gonna meet Warren? I did That's several awesome. times. Yeah. It was cool because he has a shareholders meeting in Omaha, Nebraska I heard every Heard
0: about year. that? It's kind of a legendary thing. Ten thousand people, people show. Too. And, and he has an
1: expo. Not all of his vendors can get his place in the, in the expo because you know he wants two hundred companies. And, yeah. But he takes maybe thirty of them and. Brooks, we made a special Warren Buffett kind of caricature shoe, which we sold nice. a thousand of in two, basically a day and a half. <laughs> it's crazy. Great. At 140 bucks a pop, people just want it. it. They just want yeah. to have Warren Buffett running shoe. It's probably worth something now, huh? Oh yeah, <laughs> I still have them somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in the garage. And he would always come by the booths on the first day before the place opened, and he would meet everybody and talk with the people in our booth. And, and then he actually made several trips to Seattle and talked to our entire company. So. Really down-to-earth guy, just a, a wonderful person. Made me think really highly of both his company and himself as a person.
0: Yeah, I've always read amazing stuff about how he treats his holding partners and stuff like that. And he still lives in the same house that he bought when he made his first million dollars. It's just mind-blowing. Well, it's I was there humility. for this
1: the sheriff's meeting. I was in a taxi cab drive because we had outfitted this retail store on the other side of the city. And so we had to go from the retail store. And I said, by the way, Warren must live around here somewhere. And he goes, oh, yeah. He says, I'll drive you by his house. It was about 7 at night. Or drove by and I'm looking, I'm going, well, where's like the big guard gates? He goes, oh, he doesn't have any of those. I could see inside his living room window, someone watching TV. His garage door was open. I saw his his station wagon. And I'm thinking, you're kidding me. That guy's the richest man in the world. Isn't that dangerous? And the guy says to me, yeah, just... Don't, you walk up on that front lawn, uh, there'll be a few people that greet you before you get to the door. Wonderful person, so.
0: What excited you about this job and what made you say yes when the recruiters were out doing the search and what kind of got you signed on?
1: Yeah, again, I have to, 13 years of Brooks and then I retired (laughs) because I forgot the Under Armour piece and that's actually really interesting. So I had quote unquote retired, come up with Run Happy and it was success. We did some really fun stuff and to this day, some of the work I'm most proud of and my team, it was just wonderful. My boss was great. so, I went on a high note and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was going to work sometime, but I didn't know what. So, I was taking it easy. And I got a call from Under Armour saying, We're looking for nine GMs, general managers for each of the categories. I said, Well, I have a non compete. I got to sit out a year if you want me. And they said, OK, we'll wait for you. So, I ended up going to Super Jock and Jill. Note to everybody listening, my best move ever, even though it wasn't meant to be that way. I was bored and I said, I'm just going to go. And I went to a running specialty shop in Seattle, Super Jock and deal. talked to Chet. And I said, Hey, Chet, I want to work the floor. He goes, uh, what? Uh, well, I wasn't exactly a spring chicken. I was like mid fifties. I go, yeah. I just, uh, you know, Brooks lined backwards and forwards, but I've never sold a Hoka. I've never, I haven't sold Nike for years. I just want to work for free. That's great. So, so I worked
0: dirty and learn the product and be with customers.
1: And- learned the, the staff was great. Learned so much about people. I thought I knew it all and then I realized some lady comes in and says I want to buy a running shoe but I don't want it to be mesh I'm thinking well it's all we have <laughs> she goes well, I go why wouldn't you want a mesh shoe they're lighter they're more breathable she goes because I run in the sand and I went oh uh, so I'm going hmm what do I sell her so a guy walks up to me who'd been there selling he goes sell her a Gore-Tex nothing gets in a Gore-Tex yeah, hot nice. as hell but <laughs> so I learned something that day so I did that and I ended up going to Under Armour and it was just a tough time for them because they had been growing like crazy and then all of a sudden they yeah. went flat.
0: Invested a little bit too much in wearable technologies and some of these other yeah, kind of I mean, things that kind of pivoted outside of the core business you, maybe.
1: You know that well, yeah. yeah. Three quarters of a million bucks, billion dollars oh, on uh, three apps and uh, nothing was panning out. And I was in charge of running. It's more of a business job. I mean, it was a long story. But basically, we didn't get too many resources. They were at one of these times where they were still spending money but yet revenue was flat under a Sports Authority went out of business, Sports Chalet. So it was really tough for the U.S. sporting goods market. But having said that, we were selling lots of $50 quote-unquote running shoes at Dick's Sporting Goods. But and we opened Kohl's and Dick's got upset. It was just not a good place to be for me. They ended up letting us all go <laughs> basically a year later. Yeah. So that was weird. In Baltimore, thinking, all right, now what do I do? And I got a call from two companies. One was Carhartt, uh, yeah. good buddy of mine, marketing guy there. And he had just been promoted to brand president. He wanted me to do the... Marketing job there, which I was thinking pretty cool, and it's interesting
0: because Carhartt is. When I think of a brand like 511, that is really a B2B brand in some ways, and is now starting to move more into a lifestyle brand. That's happened already with Carhartt, right? They were they were originally the clothes that you wore in the shop, and now they're you wear them out because you're a blue collar guy that works in a shop. You wear them on your the weekends too to support that lifestyle or to kind of show that wear that lifestyle on your sleeve, so to speak.
1: You're absolutely right. They really were B2B, and then they, 5.11, then they started opening their own retail stores. Yeah. So I was kind of going down that route, and I went and interviewed with them in Michigan, and it's going real well. And then this other company called 5.11 Tactile, I said, I've never heard of your brand. I was in Baltimore, they said, why don't you just drive down to our store in Springfield, Virginia, and take a look. And I'm literally expecting to walk into some, like, little seedy, sketchy, Army Navy surplus Survival store, surplus yeah, with someone yeah, pointing <laughs> the something map. at me, yeah, the gas mask. <laughs> smelling like yeah. napalm or something. <laughs> and man, I was impressed. The, the merchandising was a gorgeous store. The array of product they had was a lot of it was kind of military law enforcement, but a lot of it was just really—they're basically a pant company. Yeah, make quality. great pants. well. Yeah my boss used to say, who's ever complained about having too many pockets? Yeah, I went through (laughs) a long interview process, and yeah, then uh, I got the nod for CMO, so I moved from Baltimore to, they're based out of Irvine, California, and I've I've been here almost six months, and
0: loving it. Not a bad geographical switch either, too, right, Orange County? Expensive, but beautiful. (laughs)
1: You, You can't be, you can't.
0: In this day of age where retail is getting kicked in the nuts almost every single week you hear a horror story of brick and mortar business going folding up shop and trying to take it back online or kind of get out of the business entirely how is a brand like 511 thriving so well and opening up more and more retail stores taking that more of an old school model of brick and mortar in retail what do you think is driving that growth and making that's such a successful model for you guys?
1: Sometimes businesses have to do what they have to do. I don't think there was any grand scheme of things to go, quote, unquote, you know, analog world fashion because yeah. all of our marketing is digitally led, so it's sure. really modern in that sense. But we had this product line that if you go into some of our major accounts like Dick and Bass, they, they only have a smattering of our product, maybe a shoe, maybe a backpack, maybe a belt. And yet we make 22,000 SKUs and there was no stage, except for the website, of course. Yeah no one could see the the depth the full of full story and you're right at Carhartt it was a B2B over 60% of the business was based on doing contracts with police law enforcement agencies,
0: law, stuff like that yeah, yeah
1: and that's not traditional marketing that is more just great relationships yeah. and just beating down the door it took us eight years to get into New York City police department eight years and now we've got a deal 33,000 uniforms That's not the typical wholesale business, which I'm used to. Let's open up a store in Fresno. Let's just see how it works. They knew they had something when they opened the store, and they had a line around the the block, (laughs) 200 people, (laughs) waiting to get in, and the the line started the night before. So there's all sorts. It reminded me of my Formula One days. I didn't realize how many Formula One fanatics there are, and to this day, it amazes me how many 5.11 tactical fans there are. Brand fanatics. Brand, brand because of the product. the product, the product is speaks for awesome, and, and it's they've cool. already taken. As one guy put it to me, which really kind of knocked me on my my canny. He said, "I love you guys." He says, "You allow me to come home safe to my family every night." Mm. And I went like, "Wow, that's yeah, a pretty that's a strong association." We started building, and we're up to forty of our own stores right now. We got four. Franchises, partner stores will be at seventy, and not too long, we're opening up a couple of months, doing really well, and they're comping, and that with a really strong e-commerce, and we're just scratching the surface in Europe. The upside is tremendous. Another
0: thing that I notice in the retail stories that are actually succeeding, you think of like Lululemon or something like that, right? Their stores serve as not just a place to go and buy a product, but really a, a community center and a place that provides an experience to their customers. I notice a lot of your socialists promoting things like an army medic's gonna come down and do a class or come down and learn this skill set from this professional or come do a workout with the guys. Do you think that's part of what's really fueling that growth too is the fact that you guys are not just opening stores but you're opening a chance for people to put the brand in the hand around something that they really love. And like you said, I mean, what better tie to a product than the fact that it actually helps you do a dangerous job.
1: It's absolutely a piece of the puzzle. We have these a program we call Always Be Ready Academies and we have a person from my team who's assigned 100% to that channel and she basically organizes the these in-store events. Like you said, how to wrap a tourniquet, how to change a tire, how to, uh, self-defense for women. Podiatrists will come in, CrossFit will come in, show you how to do a great workout and we've got these things going on all the time. So yeah, it builds community and keeps them coming back in the store to see our lines. It's been fun.
0: (laughs) So how do you move from this B2B, always ready warrior, police officer, fireman, military active service, military member, to what I've seen in a lot of your marketing and a lot of your stores. When I go to the store in Salt Lake City, the advertising that I see in outdoor and positioning of the store definitely has all the core elements of the brand but it seems to be leading in the direction of a Patagonia or a Columbia or like an outdoor enthusiast brand. So do you see as phase of the growth cycle for you to really reach that consumer, that just general consumer, more enthusiast market? Is that the opportunity to take it from that core B2B roots to move to these wider circles of influence?
1: Yeah, I might word it differently. Yeah. I don't think we're going from B to B to B to C, we're mm-hmm. kind of going B to B to B to B to B to C. You know? yeah. yeah and we're just definitely. adding on. This is what intrigues me because people say, first of all, why would you go there? And, and second of all, why would they hire you? <laughs> and why would they go there is, is they're looking for someone like me. I, I'm not a gun guy. I've never, yeah. besides BB guns, a little, I've Could never shot either. a gun. Yeah. So I've just, my brother was, flew jets for the Air Force. They have 15, 16 for years. My dad was in the Marines, but I wasn't. I don't really connect with that. I don't really know any police officers. Although I did live in, in Baltimore, lived by a couple of Secret Service guys, and they, <laughs> they knew 511 and they loved it. I bet. Yelled, but they definitely brought me in to bring it to a broader access. But what intrigued me is right now, most people's access points into popular brands are things like sports or music or dance. or Lifestyle. Or, or, right. Yeah. But here it's through this tactical side. And if you look at some of the best-selling books or best-selling movies, a lot of it has to do with you know the Tom Clancy's, yeah. the Lee Child's. There's this fascination with the Navy SEAL. Oh, yeah. You know, our mission statement is, is pretty telltale. It's we built purpose-built gear for life's most demanding missions. It's if an
0: inspirational lifestyle. You every, every everybody looks up to the Navy SEALs because they operate at a level that's just beyond human capacity, and it's this small percentage. And I think we all aspire to be in our career or in our lives as a parent or whatever we do to be that considered that elite 1% is aspirational. And 5.11 ties into that story to some Um, degree.
1: You said it. That's exactly it. The tight rope you have to walk and the one I'm walking now, and you you don't want to tip over either way because the consequences are bad. And that is you can't be a political brand these days and you can't be a gun brand or you you can't take a side. Having said that, we sell to a lot of people who love guns and a lot of people, that's what they do. And that's whether it's on the job or whether it's just for for fun, they go to the range and shoot. So we can't alienate them. You don't want to alienate the non-gun people. So I'm trying to, from a brand side, I'm trying to take the brand from one that stands for that, or at least people think it stands for that, to one that takes it up a notch. When I was in Baltimore, I, I, I was just going to this barbecue place called Mission Barbecue. And it's not on the West Coast, but it's on the East Coast. And they do real well. Great barbecue, and it's owned by some vets. And you go in there, and it's just, you feel good about being American. A lot of things on the local, whatever, law enforcement, they they clearly are a supporter of the troops. And it's one of these things that just makes you feel good. And by the way, good barbecue, good atmosphere. And that's what I, when I came here, that's one of the selling points I had is I said, guys, we have to stand for that too. What do you stand for? And it's not even Americana, because we sell all over the world. It's patriotism. It's supporting troops. It's hero worship. As someone put it, a force for goodness. And how can you argue with that if the brand stands for that? When you do that, then it it allows you license to go into areas that you can actually talk out of both sides your mouth. We have a couple of these AMP mission ready bags and, and they've got they're customizable, they're versatile. You could literally use them. I have a friend of mine who's photographer for the seahawks seattle seahawks football team he uses it because it fits all of his his photographic soccer mom can use it for that a police officer will use it for a certain green beret will use it so everyone's using it for different the brand can be interpreted by many different ways and we create color versions and different styles where it look more tactical and others that you wouldn't even know it's from a tactical brand so we might end up treating our business at least from a marketing side messaging side as kind of like there's a tactical piece and then the other side there's this more
0: blend in with the normal civilians
1: <laughs> yes but i will i will take yeah i will say one thing that we won't do and if i see something that i could l- easily switch out our logo with patagonians or north faces then we haven't hit our mark ah, and i've seen that a lot because we yeah. just did an rfp with agencies and a lot of them mm-hmm. came in with good outdoor campaigns and he goes we will get our butts handed to if we started if we start, if start, we start against
0: those guys yeah,
1: yeah and, and nike as well i mean yeah. We're our own little lane and we don't really have any yeah. competitors.
0: Just stay number one in your category and then you'll expand out logically to the next levels. I see people wearing 5'11 golf polos like the one you got on right now on the golf course. Yeah. I see guys in my jujitsu class wearing the rash guards under their jiu-jitsu geese. So it's already seeping its way into these other categories by oversections, those Venn diagrams of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So guys like you for the tactical over here. But then they see the functionality for their jiu-jitsu workout. And then that guy starts paying attention to jiu-jitsu. And they say, yeah, what's up? I'm like, wonder when 5.11 is going to start making jiu-jitsu geese. You know, stuff like that. seems so like <laughs> that could be a logical a way to
1: approach it. It's kind of a club too, yeah. which is weird. I was playing tennis in, in this shirt uh, not too long ago. A guy comes up to he goes, 5.11, huh? And I went, yeah. He goes, you work there? And I go, yeah. And he goes, yeah. he goes, I'm a shooter. <laughs> and I said, Un- are unspoken. you? And he goes, and I went, yeah. I said, I'm. I've been in the range the first time. He goes, no, 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 I know you. You're a shooter, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I he winked at me and walked away like, okay, I guess I'm a shooter. Oh, that's funny.
0: <laughs> it was funny. Talked a little bit about this in the lobby. One thing that I've noticed about your brand up to you coming on board six months ago is it's always had a tone of being pretty, I wouldn't say serious, that tone. And then also you guys have done these just amazing pieces of celebrating the unsung heroes, the guys that don't get credit, the first responders, the guys that don't that you don't hear about and as far as that haven't gotten their moment in the sun so to speak for for these courageous acts and these hard jobs that they do i think that's been super interesting and super effective for you guys one of the things that i noticed in some of the new creative that's coming out especially with this spot that i just saw you guys release on social with we are the mighty i think Mm -hmm. it's called seems like guys are starting to maybe not take yourselves as seriously as in the past as far as from a tone perspective maybe letting some Humor leak into the marketing to make it a little bit more approachable and a little less intense maybe for the average guy that you or I is not a gun enthusiast and just sees the brand attributes that are appealing outside of the gun enthusiast component. That's something that was deliberate on your part because I know I've noticed that irreverency and humor has played a part in a lot of other campaigns that you've been a part of in
1: prior roles. Again, uh, sometimes I pinch myself and go, why did they hire me? Because if I look around the building, there are some really serious shots, <laughs> images of people with guns about ready to blow your head off if you look look at them the wrong way. Just look them in the eyes, right? What's really interesting, and this is not even coming from me, it's coming from a little bit of observation, but it's coming from guys who were former operators. And they'll say, you don't understand, and, and especially law enforcement, you don't understand, we don't want to see guns in our... We have a sense of humor about it because we look at that side of our business something we got to do and it's not pleasant Usually, the outcome is one way or form so as long as you nail the insight and it's always the same way marketing or messaging is always about i call it spot-on consumer insight at the end of the day no matter who you're talking to you want them to say ah oh, those guys get me man they, un- they get it and we all know when they hit it and if you're off they look at you like you're a poser and then it's disaster and i went into the running business again i really surrounded myself with guys and i'd always test things out on what would a real runner say because I was that guy in tennis and I'd do the same thing here so you got to get the tone right but having said that they're begging us to do stuff that it's a little lighter it's not about see- and I went to the shot show that was, and stressful, I looked right <laughs> every com- there was 20 companies that were imaged exactly the same way Serious guy, commercial, slick ad, perfectly camouflaged up, yeah. to be well. And and, you know, and it was yeah. like, really, guys? Because that's not what people, I think, are looking for. They'll get that. Either. And the funny thing about that We Are the Mighty thing, we didn't even produce it. I told you that I didn't. earlier. I, we did. I, I wish we did. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's that Dollar Shave Club stuff. And, and I looked yeah. at it and went, this is funny. And, and then I showed it to our new president, Francisco Morales, who's nice. been here for 20 years. And he's, you know, come see the real deal. Plus, yeah. he's in charge of all our products. He loved it. That's and then great. my boss, Tom Davin, loved it. And so yeah. I go, okay. Because the guy who did it was a former ranger. They were all vets that were part of that group, right? Yep. The humor was funny. I played in front of women. It's just a guy making jokes about <laughs> bananas in his extra pocket and stuff, which is kind of a guy thing. But they loved it. They just thought it was funny. So I go, okay, if I get someone who's not a 5'11 like fanatic broader as well as a 5'11 fanatic to both like Communication yeah. we got some talking a little bit earlier about how
0: you like to get hands dirty a little bit spend time with Customers essentially whether that's work, working in a store for a day to really understand the needs of the consumer and the product base I noticed that in some of your past interviews and in some of your uh, titles in your resume are, are on LinkedIn you've always mentioned your job is vice president of marketing plus light hauling. Or, you saw that? where you find uh, that? Or <laughs> CMO plus light hauling. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I see, that seems to pay some bit of an homage to there's no job that you would ask somebody to do that you wouldn't do yourself. Is that
1: kind of a business philosophy that carry with you? What, what's that all about? Well, titles are, are BS for the most part. I just look at, I've had more experience and I'm pretty smart at what I do, but everybody's good at something. We're all part of the same team. So I don't consider myself even though I would be making a little more money and I've got more seniority but at the end of the day everyone's special and the light hauling thing I actually took that from a guy named Bob Woodward who is a <laughs> ski crazy man and he had that and I loved it and I borrowed it I even told him when I saw it he goes oh go ahead and use it cuz nice. he said senior vice president of this or that a senior vice president of marketing and light hauling <laughs> I just thought it was funny yeah. I loved it
0: I'll take my pickup and move a mm. couch for you if you need to at least to me it speaks to some other things I've learned about you today as far as you're not afraid to roll up your sleeves, learn about the customer from the top, but also from the bottom. And I think that's important to really understand your
1: consumer. Yeah, especially when you're in something new. Yeah. I mean, my first couple of weeks, they had me at Quantico going through the FBI yeah. Academy and I'm like way out of my <laughs> element. I was just these people, I saw a canine demonstration, it was fantastic. To talk with the people who really are the ones who depend upon your product and really look up to you as brand got to make sure i hold my own so it's you got to be authentic had i listened to what everybody told me i would have never been a marketing guy because they told me i was a promotion and i've taken some people who were terrible presenters but really smart organizationally and taken them through toastmasters and all of a sudden they became our best presenters. so people thought that person's boring they had, they're not had an ounce of creativity and we extracted it out of her, and she became my superstars at wow.
0: Brooks. Everything can be learned if you spend, it's like that 10,000 hours idea, right? If you, yeah, spend if it you can't time learn it, you know, I can't
1: dunk, but yeah. you know, but, but I, I can find what you're good at. There's sure. a guy who told me running shop. He said, the reason why I like you guys at Brooks is because you take your product really seriously, but you don't take yourself seriously. Nice. And that was something I've always, let's face it, guys, life's short. I had a brother who died brain cancer and was gone six months later. And greatest guy in the world. And enjoy it while you're on this earth because you never know. And and don't be a jerk. And not curing cancer and
0: marketing and advertising. And we're not gambling people's retirements or anything like that. We're just, at the end of the day, messaging great products, hopefully. He
1: says, everyone's a great problem identifier. He says, I want people that are problem solvers. And I always look for people who see the world as half full and not half empty. I yeah. don't want the Eeyores telling me how oh, it's been but done before. Do Everything's been done before. For sure, It's what's your twist, right? Yeah, yeah. And Another thing I learned, and this is my Nike days, because Phil Knight used to say it. He said, you don't get fired here for making a mistake. You get fired here for lying about making a mistake. So it's all about, go ahead and... If you're trying to hit a home run, you're going to whiff a few times. I'm trying to hit home runs here. I didn't come here to hit singles. We're going to make, make some mistakes, but hopefully not too many of them. And hopefully when we do connect, it's going to go along.
0: Who is the best... Sales guy or agency business development guy to ever call on you as a marketer and,
1: and especially when I think of individuals I can spot a few and I think of agencies
0: yeah as well. or you can or it could also be a really great shop that you worked with in the past I mean I'm sure you spent time with White and a lot of these big boys you know at Nike and down to probably more agile and nimble shops and stuff
1: like that well one of the best salesmen Nick Friedman Nick Friedman the best guy I worked for was Nick Friedman nice. <laughs> um, Nick Nick Friedman was at uh, runner's world and he anticipated your needs. He knew what we were gonna say and he and he had in his back pocket. So someone who comes and they, I try to tell my kids that, don't just wait for your boss or your parents to tell you what to do, think ahead. Wouldn't it be great if you surprised mom by actually washing the dishes <laughs> before she yelled, yelled at you three times to do it? That's a dumb example. And Nick, he was just always calling me when he didn't need to, just called me. Yeah. So he's just, it became a friendship.
0: So it was less transactional, more of a relationship. Things that he was almost an extension of your team versus being a supplier.
1: I did an agency RFP. I just did one here at 511, but I did one at Brooks a while back. We had some really talented agencies come in, and and a lot of them kind of gave you what they think you either needed or they think you wanted, as opposed to what was absolutely gonna blow you away and take some risks. So we had a company came in, and I ended up using it for 10 years. They came in, and there was a guy in our company said, uh, our new creative is gonna be around the blue line. Follow your blue line, it's, it's for a running company. And we are going like, why, what's, I don't get it. brute's colors are blue. I said, I still don't get it. <laughs> Like, you know that when you run a marathon at the Olympics, they paint a blue line around the city and you follow that blue line. I went, oh, I didn't know that. Those guys, three of them went around the world to like six marathon sites and filmed where the Olympic line was. Uh, it still was today? A couple of them are. Like in um, Sydney it is, but Paris it's gone yeah, and yeah. LA it's gone. But having said that, I think there were two cities. And if not, they kind of side figured and it and still out. took it. But the point is, you know, I even talked to one of our reps from Canada who had run LA Olympics and she did. Uh, and so I'm going, this insight is way too small. No one. But nevertheless, that was the RFP. How would you market finding your blue line? And so this company came in. They said, all right, here's what you wanted. And we kind of gave you what you wanted. It wasn't very good. And, but then they came up with a really, really creative idea. And they said, there's this book out. I hadn't heard of it, but a lot of people did. It was called Harold and the Purple And what Harold did, he looks like the Pillsbury Doughboy. It's like a little cartoon sketch. And it's a kid's book. It said one day Harold decides he's going to go outside. So he draws his, with his purple crayon a little path outside and he decides to go to the, f- the carnival and he draws a Ferris wheel. And it's about him basically drawing his experience and doing what he wants based on his imagination. They changed it to Harold and the Blue Crayon and it was all about one day Harold decides to run a marathon. He wanted to win a marathon, so he draws himself running into a stadium with people cheering. One day he decides he wants to run a lot and eat as much as he wants, so he ball- draws a, a bowl of pasta. Car- lighting, right? Yeah, and, and, but it was really clever. I showed it to my the CEO at that time. And he goes, oh, I don't know. I was at Pillsbury. I don't want to have another Pillsbury. Doughboy. <laughs> boy. I don't want Harold's little kid with diapers representing my brand. But having said that, we actually tried to do it. And nice. we would have done it, but Sony owned the rights. And... Uh... and they were going to charge us an arm and a leg for the rights to use it, which we actually found the money to do. And then they wanted it to be purple, and we said no, it has to be blue. but my point, as I said, anybody who can think of that idea, I want to be part of them. I'd have to flush work down the toilet. It was just way too bizarre. <laughs>
0: but when you got the gym, it was it was gold. And so, so the lesson to agencies is don't just come with what you think the client wants or what they need. Really, come with to the table with an insightful unique idea that's built from their own point of view on the world and their approach a, to creative insight insight. insight and insights that drive that creative not just I mean, ideas for the sake of creatives being creatives and
1: putting sticky notes on the wall and stuff like that anybody who's listening to this remarking will know this backwards and forwards but it's about combining a great insight with something a juxtaposition against something that doesn't I used to do that to my with my PR people at the WTA I'd say guys They go, what are we going to, you know, we got to do all these stories and we're we're now in, we've got a tournament now in Miami and we have no idea. And I said, okay, let's take all of who's showing up and let's find out their interests. Kim Kleister's, I can't remember, Kim Kleister's loves fish. She just, she loves going to the beach. She loves watching whales. And I went, okay. Uh, Kornikova loves race cars all around Miami during this week, see what's going on. Oh, there's a cart race. Let's bring that cart race. Let's take his car, put it on center court, and she'll be able to drive it around for a little bit. Let's take Kim Kleister's to the aquarium and have her ride the dolphins. So it's was taking two things that didn't work together, but that there could be some connectivity and making them and then lighten it up. And people that do that with life in general, the Reese Cup, yeah. chocolate and peanut butter. They shouldn't yeah, go yeah. together, but they made it. <laughs> they did it. Another yep. cramming it down your throat every commercial I see. Swing for the fences. I see so many mediocre stuff here. And I said, I don't want my name attached to that. I'd rather go out flaming and having struck out a few times. Than doing the safe thing.
0: What's your perspective in the current landscape of agency roster and responsibility versus house. keeping things in house? Both your personal point of view and kind of where Five Eleven is on that trip, on that journey today. The
1: agency model has changed dramatically because the old days where you'd have a big staff and you'd have a lot of clients. You know the Mad Men days where, and then you lose a client and you got to lay off people. People can't afford that. It's yeah. too risky, it's too expensive. It's more about core group of senior people who know what they're doing and then reaching out when they have a project and staffing up with a lot of freelancers whom they know really well and work together. A lot of these people used to be at big agencies now. So that's the new model. When I say new, it's not yesterday, but it's been going on for 10 years. Big agencies are just too expensive. In-house, the problem with in-house, especially creative, is, is uh, first of all, a lot of the really good creative guys are either real, too ex- very expensive, too expensive for you, or they're so creative that they don't want to limit their creative experts with just one, one brand, brand to be you able to mix bored. it up and get yeah. bored. So that makes it difficult. Yeah. So the ideal thing is you get someone who's kind of up and coming and young and still has got great ideas. And you might be able to keep them for three or four years before they go on and move on to bigger things. But they, you groom someone else. Having said that, I've got, I'm so lucky here because we got a guy who's just former Hollywood producer of, uh. of movies To this d- date, and we are we're in September, 350 videos. Just for a brand that's crazy and he, he never says no to a video which is a problem because he <laughs> overworked himself but he loves it and working with agencies is tough because I, i'll go to him and they go okay so what we're going to do is we're going to go i'm going to need a helicopter so i'm going to rent all this helicopter it's going to cost six grand for the day and then i'm going to and, and my guy will say no 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 i i i know all the guys who work the reveal and reveal they have all that stuff we got up for free <laughs> and he, we don't give him a backpack and they're happy because yeah, he's got the connections he's got the connection and he's, he's a got former. the inside track so i'm actually because he's only a one-man show, I'm marrying him up with a couple agencies who get it and, can, and they can he can manage an agency as opposed to do it all himself. It's not easy creative, because you know this better than anybody else. Uh, creative, there's so much content oh, yeah. to keep social media alive every single day. And then all of our retailers and our stores, content needs. It used to be, you, know, you spent, and I don't know what the ratio is, but say maybe one-tenth of your budget on creating creative and the rest yeah, is all in media. media. Now it's, at least with us, it's practically one to one. If you're smart with social media, it's not. Although it's getting. Scary.
0: What is one of the coolest experiences you've ever had with like a rep or a vendor? Like, it, like uh, I always like to hear those. Once in a lifetime things that a vendor maybe put together as a meeting trip or some kind of an exclusive dinner or something, something that a rep did that was really special and memorable.
1: Trying to get a business or just with?
0: Either way. It could be a just client entertaining for an account that was, or an agency or a vendor was with you for a long time or pull out the stops to win the business.
1: I'll tell you a couple, I did. Yeah. Only because that great. Foot Locker was the big gorilla. We called the buyers, they had, we called them big pencils. We sold 45,000 <laughs> pairs of a performance running shoe in a year, it was considered a good, good shoe. If you got lucky with a fashionable item, it, you could sell like 150,000 pair. I went in the first time with our line of, this is when I first got there, we had a line of about nine shoes and the buyer looked at me. He took his hand across the table and he swept them all on the floor and he says, I don't see a damn thing here I'd buy from you. Oh, man. This is Nike too. I was actually pee on little brand. I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a tough job. I started pulling out all the stops. I mean, literally, <laughs> first of all, our product got a lot better. but. What I did is I went up to Agassiz. I said, Andre, I got this guy. Or, sorry, we, we had a little video camera. Yeah. And I said, um, it's before cell phones and yeah, cameras. Yeah. And I said, I, I got this buyer, Gary Crowe. He just won't buy anything from us. And I just need you to say something. I can't use swear words here, but I, I'll, I'll I'll say the nice version of it. He says, Gary, this is Andre. He says, I live about two blocks from Foot Locker. And I go by there and I never see my damn shoe. What the hell is going to my shoe? Get my shoe in there or I'll come by and I'll kick your ass. Okay. <laughs> And I got Sampras to do the same thing. And Sampras did the – he didn't even see the egg scene. One. He just got in his face. And so we had at a big Foot Locker meeting in the Woolworth Building in New York City. And, and here we are, and I'm about ready to show him the shoe line. And then I said, oh, by the way, we got our TV spots ready for this year. <laughs> and it was, and it, was, it was a big meeting with all of his bosses. And he go, you got your sh- – are ready?" I go, yeah, we got them done early. You guys will be the first to see them. And then I show him both these spots up. And the guy literally almost fell on the ground laughing, <laughs> laughing. Can I have those? I go, yeah, you can have these VHRs. <laughs> VHSs. Oh, and, uh, great, yeah, they never forgot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And we used to take them. You can have meetings or you can have meetings. We used, yeah. Like one time I took them to the U.S. Open and oh, I got yeah. them a hospitality tent. I actually got them right on court, too. The guys, the buyers, there were 10 of them for all sports, not just tennis. They never left the hospitality tent. They watched it on TV and drank a lot of alcohol. A lot of Heineken They didn't right? even go in the stadium, which I paid a lot of money for the tickets. And they came back. That was the greatest tennis thing I've ever been to. Wow. Awesome. I'll tell you one more. This is yeah, this is a I good one. And, and, and do this. Okay? I will. Tell you you do this one. This one worked for me. And in My third week at Nike, and I had to present to the board of directors. And all these guys are about 90 years old. Everybody, Bill Bowerman, to former heads of like IBM, they're just very successful people. And Phil Knight and John Thompson. They said, "You got 10 minutes. Do not go over 10 minutes. If you do, Knight will will look away, and you're you you do not want that." <laughs> he said. Second, they they had meetings on how to deal with the board. Second thing is. Always start, give them something free. I go, and these people are worth like millions. They go, give them something free. And, he, and they go, make sure they don't stray because once you lose it, it can get really ugly. So I go, I'm thinking, okay, I just gotta make you 10 minutes. And I had three lines I had to show. One was courier stuff, which is collegiate look, good looking stuff, pinstripes like Cincinnati Reds uniforms. That's the team he liked. And then you had this clean cut Sampras stuff I to- told you about, really beautiful lines. And then we had this tennis line for the challenge card, Agassiz. We missed it that year. It said, tennis sucks in graphic letters tennis sucks and I'm looking at it. and the designer would not budge no it's gonna sell you it's anti I said no no please so I had to present this line to this, this board I'm like, well, what am I gonna do <laughs> so I went and I I got a boom box I walked into the meeting first of all oh hi Dave because I was pretty new there hi and I go by the way I've got some new cool t-shirts from the Smith samples like oh these are great can I have two for my guy? Gr- oh here you go yeah. already I'm doing well and I showed them the first two lines, got the, the thumbs up, the nods and the smiles. And then I walked over and I had about two more minutes. And I walked over to this boom box and I pressed the button. And this is a big boom box. And it was Pearl Jam, but it was one of their songs. It was just like, <laughs> it, there was no rhythm to it. It was just loud. And I played it for, whatever 20 seconds. And there's silence in the room and everyone was looking at me and Knight was looking at me going like, what are you doing, you what here. are you doing? I said, anybody here like that song? They all shook their head ah, a bunch of noise and rubbish you know? would you ever buy this they go no yeah me neither No, this album that I just played that played a song off of sold more albums than anybody in the history of music the first six weeks was out the first six weeks more than yeah, Bing Crosby yeah. more than uh, Frank Sinatra more than the Beatles you might not like it but there's a crowd it is so I'm yeah. going to show you a line I don't like it and I know you won't like it nice. but there's a crowd that likes it so I showed him it. I said, anybody like it here? And they all kind of smiled and shook their head. And I walked, <laughs> walked out. audience, right? Yeah. Now you asked me, did it sell? No, it didn't sell at all. It was a dud. It was terrible. But yeah, that got me out of it. Uh, oh, try that sometime, though. Like that. So after That's a while, great. some of the guys at billing saying, well, I don't like it, but I suppose there is an audience for it. I saw your
0: career on Twitter was fairly brief. I think you put out two tweets. <laughs> you know, Are you a bunch of a social
1: media guy yourself? I'm What's, not. Yeah, and okay. uh, if I was younger, I would... Be sure I am because it's important. But I look at it like that's all I talk about all day long on social media. (laughs) I look up posts. I I do it. And but the last thing I do, and I got a jillion emails each day, and a jillion Instagrams, and a jillion LinkedIn, and I got voicemail and. Honestly, the last thing I want to do is start data posting. Points, Having so said that, my yeah. boss, same age as me, he does it all the time and he loves uh, it. And he, want, and he looks at me like, why don't you do it? I go, I have no desire. I've got a team that does it. But I'm the guy looking over the shoulder and saying, that's not a good story. Change it or of huge vested interest. And I know how important it is, but yeah. personally, I just went and had a tuna sandwich. It's just, and <laughs> well, you right. get a lot of trouble if you say the wrong thing too, which I really yeah. I'm surprised I got hired for my job, actually. <laughs> <laughs>
0: without being on you said i'm active on linkedin pretty much only i post everywhere but i don't just sit there all day looking at it what's important is understanding especially the generation that's coming up now how connected and dialed they are into it for good or for worse in some instances understanding how to tell stories on those platforms i think is like you said it's what's important it's not that you're out there you're trying to do your own thing on social media and stuff too. Well, I think it's the you do what understanding you, yeah. the power of the
1: platforms. So. Oh, totally. And in fact, I've always learned that if something's out of your your sweet spot, you just I've got a team, they are awesome at it. I basically turn to them and I said, I'm, I'm going to oversee this part of it. You're the boss here. I had to go once, uh, I was in Germany, and the uh, coolest thing I ever did, my boss came and he said, Okay, I'm coming in. He goes, I want you guys to think of something that you've never done before, I've always wanted to do. And the company's going to pay for it to do it within uh, reason of course right, yeah, right yeah. you know it can involve going to a retail store because that's what we always right, do they come and in, we go yeah, yeah, yeah. no we go let's go visit yeah. and so i said think creative guys somebody said we're in germany right americans in germany one guy said i've always wanted to be backstage at a concert with the band before a huge stadium concert someone said i've always wanted to teach english to foreign english history to foreign elementary kids. Uh, Someone said, I've always wanted to go to MTV. I want to talk to skateboarders at Venice. So we said, okay, so what's the German version of this? And everybody, pool your resources. Let's figure out how to do all this stuff. So we found a guy who was friends with a guy who was friends with one of the drummers for Toto Hosen, which is a big band in Germany. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it still is, but then it was huge. And they had sold out the stadium in Dusseldorf, 38,000 people. And we got to go backstage wow. and talk to them. Cool. We got to go on to an English class and be the Americans in the room as these German kids were telling us what they thought of America. Now it would, that would be an ugly day. Somebody said, I want to go to MTV and see what it's like, how they stay so cool. Yeah. Well, we were in Germany and MTV was big, but the bigger station there was Viva. It was a German version. They played German songs as opposed to the same format, yeah. videos and all that. H- Hasselhoff videos. <laughs> yeah. No, they play, It was. it was pretty... Yeah. We went there, and I remember one thing he said. He's got this hot show, and I, I looked at him, and I said, so how do you guys stay relevant with these young? Pretty simple. He goes, A, I hire people from the genre, and I let them work. That's and he anything. goes, and I do, and I don't know if I believe in this one, but he said, I do revolution. He goes, every year, I change them up. I put them someplace where they've never been. Before. The whole company was run by these 20-year-olds. So that's kind of the way my thing with social media. That's I've got a team, and I said, you guys are the experts. I'm going to make sure that the business objectives are hit, I'm going to be looking at the metrics and all that. You guys are the one who's going to tell me tone of voice and all that, and and they're good at. It. And by the way, when they're not, it's pretty obvious. And you got people that are just sitting there with a bunch of money, and that's working. Boost, 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 boost. That's not change a word, change it, swap throw it, it out, yeah. swap it's it ama- out.
0: It's amazing the real time feedback you can get. My marketing budget for this podcast is is pretty moderate. I May mean, I spend more time paying attention to thousand dollar Facebook boost than I do on campaigns up? Spend a half million dollars of a client's money for because you see that. Feedback loop of something that you own and how yep. people are engaging, and even on those smaller numbers, and it's just amazing how you can make such small micro investments and get real time return on ad spend. You have digital channels now; it's just such a and that anybody can do it with a credit card too. It's just kind yeah, of a no, game
1: changer. What, yeah, we just give our social media people credit cards, and they just throw in <laughs> a company card. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's totally changed.
0: The it's game. Funny because you you talked about G four uh, when your time there, and also. MTV, And it's funny because G4 MTV was all linear music videos for a long time and then eventually they pivoted out of music videos and went into this more like reality TV for the low production cost type Mm -hmm. formatting. But then you think about YouTube and the biggest category on YouTube, the category that makes the most amount of money and the most amount of views is music videos, for Vivo, right? Vivo is the media property. And then you think of G4, what G4 intended to be, which was a linear network programming to the gaming community, and what's the second biggest category on YouTube is the gaming community, and then Twitch, it was acquired by amazon for a billion dollars after five years why did these formats fail on tv and are thriving in digital now is it just the idea of being able to control the terms in which you access that content the fact that you can i don't need mtv to tell me that post malone is the cool video or the beach boys or elton john i can just go and search it and find it my else and i can kind of look at this content the way that i want to or what do you think do you have any insight into why it didn't work in T V or it kind of fell out of favor in TV but worked so well in digital channels.
1: Question. I wish I had the answer. I, I just I just have a few fundamental beliefs is, is good storytelling works in any medium. Yeah. When you get something that connects, that's one maxim. The other maxim is it's flipped. It used to be and this is everybody knows this, but it used to be Big Brother created content and told you what to think and what to do and to get knowledge you'd have to your professor or your parents or read a book or and now it's everything's to touch your finger. You control your life. My kid never asked me anything because he knows I won't know the answer, yeah. and he can just look it up right away. So it's totally changed. So also, it's all about creating your version of the world mm-hmm. and being the best you can be, as opposed to following role models. The medium of this new medium allows you to do that. And older people, which is my, I'm a little more traditional, even though I'm crazy creative. But sometimes I just don't want to deal with the house. I just don't want to have to deal with going through layers and layers of files to get something. Yeah. I know if I called a person, I'd get it like that. So Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a backlash, but having said that, all sorts of creativity and just stories at your fingertips are just a matter of finding them.
0: Do you have a point of view on content marketing versus advertising? I see this interesting paradigm now where I've got young kids that are three and five years old, and they never grew up with linear television with ads in it. So when they experience that in a hotel room or at grandma's house, they are violently angry. What is this? This yeah. is not, I won't accept that this is the way things are as it come, as it pertains pertain accessing content. Do you think uh, the advertising world is headed for a shakeup with this next generation? when they It's are...
1: already happened. I mean, honestly, it's not even the next generation. It's yeah. my, I, I can't look at ads anymore. Yeah, and I'm, right. I'm a guy who actually enjoys looking at a good ad, not Me too. bad ad. Yeah. I will purposely wait a half an hour for a show to begin so I can just oh, TV through. Everyone's figured it out. I mean, go look at the advertising. It's about geritol and, and drugs to you know keep you from dying, and you just know it. They're tar- they know the only people watching that are people that are seventy years old. And how do you make money these days? And yeah. change your algorithm. And the Rates are going through the roof because the claimants you know thinks- inventory, but it's the only way they can make money right. They're just not seeing as viral videos anymore. You yeah. have to pay to play. Yeah, pay to play. Yeah. And that it's going to get just as expensive, especially when some of the big boys. To start. Having said that, now you can measure stuff. It's yeah. pretty easy. It's you, you, every week, first meeting, it's like, okay, how we do this last week in social in social media and impressions, and and you can't even believe impressions anymore. The clicks, they say it's all robotic. Did a, a guy tell us last week only one out of your of your hundred images are real? The rest uh-huh. are going to robots or some sort of automation. i Can't even believe. I guess it's conversion.
0: But. I guess at the end of the day, yeah, it's return on ad spend, right? You know, show that this person actually banged their credit card for a product, they showed up to a store, or something like that.
1: The bad part of this whole new revolution in how to, is creativity's taken a hit. One, people are doing things for the short term, and so there's no production value, except for like feature films, it's yeah. different. But, so there's that piece of it, and two, it's just uh, something that you're creating so much content that no one really takes time to produce good things. It's becoming transactional marketing. It's kind of noise. I basically said in a meeting today, I said, good hey, guys, we're a transactional company. We're doing all these discount promotions. You call them campaigns. They're not a campaign. It's a sales promotion. Yeah. Come in, get 20% off. That for me isn't marketing. That's just that's transactional, yeah. which is fine. You need that too. Where's the part of it that creates the halo over your brand that people start to love you? Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do here is get some really good storytelling, yeah. creative platforms until tell some platform that you can extend off of. That's the white space now. Because the company is doing the old-fashioned way, they're, they're dinosaurs. That's not working. The people are just doing quick ads at all times, which we were doing. You're seeing the, the trees and not the forest, yeah. and you don't get anybody loving your brand anymore because it's all about just getting in the store just and converting, and converting, messaging. It's and not... most companies are taking their ad budgets and they're going, well, if I spend $100 here, I can have a conversion rate of 0.02, and it's just based on how quickly you can get them down the bottom funnel. Well, in reality. Sometimes you just need a lot of great, unbelievable brand awareness. You can't get them
0: down here unless you get them up here first, right? And, yeah, yeah, and
1: sure. get that promoter score going. That's the key is yeah. getting the influencers, yeah. getting people to talk about your brand. And you don't do it just with a, an ambassador. It has to be also just what do you stand for? People want to know why why you why you do what you do. It's no longer good enough. Got Plank in a lot of trouble at Under Huge, and it wasn't even his fault. Someone, 34-minute interview, they asked him something about Trump at the end of it. And all he said was, all Kevin Plank said was, I like the fact he's pro-American. And that just ballooned into this thing. All of a sudden, Planks for the Wall and all that. And he never said any of that. And so he had to go on the defensive in front of our whole company. And people were kind of saying, listen, I'm just a businessman. I I didn't mean any of this. And people in the company were looking saying, hey, we want to know what you really stand for. What do you believe? They wanted a Patagonia. And and that's, yeah, they want to know why, not just how so that's what I'm trying to do at 5.11, it's become a brand that people love because it's got this halo of hoarding goodness, I call it, and not just about whether you're on this side of the political fence or you're on this side of the gun-no-gun no gun thing. That's catch-up.
0: I think that's a good place to end it. Great. Uh, good. I really hey, thanks, man. It. It's fun, fun. fun talking. Yeah, it's fun too. for me, too. I ah, hope, learn hope so. a little
1: bit more about myself, I guess. I like it. I love uh, your
0: perspective, too. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. That's all the time we have for today. If you like the show, don't forget to give us a review in iTunes and to subscribe. And if you have any ideas for guests for the show, don't forget to tag them in the comments. Thanks so much, and we'll see you again next week.